Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Sharissa Fong. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, we are so blessed to be here in this place to come and worship you and also to study your word and to pray. As we do this just now, we invite your spirit, Lord, to speak very personally to each heart. I pray that the message which we study will be clear and may it challenge us and may it change us because we spend time with Jesus today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We make sure my clicker is working here. All right, many years ago, a U.S. soldier, he was a groom serving in the U.S. Army, he wrote a love note to his bride who was a long way from home. But something went wrong with the delivery of that letter and his love note got lost in a mailroom somewhere in San Francisco. Fifty years later, James and Sally Bracey, the now married couple, were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary when they received a phone call from the post office to say that a letter dated January 28, 1955 had been found and it was addressed to Sally Bracey. Well, it was Sally somebody else at that time. And so she was so excited. She said when she received the letter, she said her heart fluttered, tears welled up in her eyes eyes and she turned into a love-struck 22-year-old all over again. She said, and I quote, it meant a lot to me then. It means even more to me now. And I bring that up as our introduction this morning because many years ago, in fact, around about 1900 years ago, the Apostle John, he penned a love story of, from Jesus on the lonely Isle of Patmos. It's a book called Revelation. And I call it a love story because it has all the trappings of one. It has a prince that is Jesus. There is his woman, the bride, the church, and he loves his woman. And then there is this villain who's constantly going about to try and steal his woman from from, uh, Jesus. And so when the book opens, we instantly discover something remarkable that Jesus has seven love letters of his own to give to his church. And I'd like to submit to you this morning that they meant a lot back then when John was writing down what Jesus was telling him, but they even mean more to us today. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, and just notice with me verse 11. Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. These are the words of Jesus there in red in my Bible. It says, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I'd like to submit to you this morning that the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches are as foundational to the book of Revelation as Daniel chapter 2 is to the book of Daniel, because as you just saw there in the verse you read, the whole book of Revelation is addressed to the seven churches. And if you look at their geographical locations here on the map, I'll trace it out for you, you will see that their geographic location actually follows the location of what? 
what could be a natural trade route. So one messenger could take these letters and the people in Pergamos could read the letter from Smyrna and Ephesus and everybody could read one another's mail is the point that I'm trying to make here today. And I'll just back up a couple of slides to this one here because you will notice as you read chapter one that Jesus is pictured as having a very tender regard for his church, doesn't he? He's walking amongst the candlesticks. And I think that's important for us to remember because God loves his church. And yes, no church is perfect and every church has problems, I know that. But we need to be careful about how we talk about the church because when we're talking about the church, we're talking about the bride of Christ. And he loves his bride and he doesn't like anyone talking bad about his woman. So now that I've established this, I'd invite you to now come with me to Revelation chapter two. And I want us to look at the letter this morning to the church of Thyatira. Uh, Here we go. Thyatira, Revelation chapter two, notice with me verse 18. It says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Thyatira, Thyatira was not a great poet like Ephesus was. You can see where uh, Ephesus is here on the map. It wasn't like Ephesus. It wasn't a commercial center like Smyrna, and it wasn't even a capital city like Pergamos. Thyatira literally just sat in the plain, which is why Pliny later dismissed Thyatira with these words, and he called it one of those unimportant cities. Thyatira was actually the smallest and the most insignificant of all of the seven churches. And yet here's an amazing fact. It receives the longest letter from Jesus of all the seven churches. That's just interesting. Thyatira means this, sweet savor of labor. And perhaps this is a fitting title because everybody in Thyatira worked. You'll see why in just a moment. Today, Thyatira has just this remaining. There are a pile of marble stones, ancient Corinthian columns, remnants of an ancient basilica that are left of it, and a stone sarcophagus, which is a stone that is used for burial. It bears the only inscription that we have of its name today. Thyatira was Roman from about uh, 190 BC, however, for about 300 years. However, when the Pax Romana came in, things changed. You see, before the Pax Romana or the Roman peace was established, uh, Thyatira being on this outskirt sort of city, when armies were coming to attack Pergamos, they would first wipe out Thyatira. And so that would give the people in Pergamos time to get themselves together and be ready to defend their city. So Thyatira as a city was destroyed and rebuilt over and over again until the Roman peace came in. And that's when this place suddenly turned into a commercial place which was known for its trade guilds or trade unions. Uh, That is like unions of craftsmen. And they had guilds for pottery, guilds for wool, guilds for brass, and more than any other city in Asia Minor. And Thyatira is only mentioned twice in the Bible, once here in Revelation, and the other time in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, where Lydia was the first convert of Paul in Philippi, and also the first Christian convert in all of Europe, actually. And she was a seller of purple from 
Thyatira. That's just an interesting fact. She was probably living abroad there as a representative for the purple dyeing people back home in Thyatira. And I just want to tell you a little bit about purple dye because this was just not something cheap. Purple was a very expensive commodity. Uh, you can see there, I've put a picture of a sea snail called the Murex. The way they got the purple dye was from the throat of this shellfish. They could get one drop of purple dye. And so to get a whole lot of purple dye, that was an expensive thing. But what set Thyatira apart from all of everybody else was that they worked out how to get the same color from the root of a tree. And so when we meet Lydia here in the Bible, we are meeting her selling one of the most expensive commodities in the Roman Empire. But friends, when she found Jesus, she found a joy that Oprah couldn't give and money can't buy. Amen? She found the Lord. And when we find him too, we can experience that same joy. More worth, it's worth much more than any purple could be worth. And we can't be 100% sure, but scholars believe that it is possible that it was Lydia, this one woman who brought the gospel to Thyatira, and perhaps she was the one who was responsible for planting a church there in that city. Just some interesting details. And I think that's a really good thought because you and I should never underestimate what the Holy Spirit can do through us when we give ourselves to God. God can do so much with just one life. Uh, we look in the Bible, we see one woman. She went back to Samaria and changed Samaria. We see one demoniac meets Jesus and then he goes and takes the gospel to Decapolis. We see the eunuch encounters Christ and then takes the gospel to Ethiopia. I love the story I heard about Dwight Moody. One night he was preaching and a lady came and heard him. And as she was listening to him, she noted down that he was making a lot of grammatical errors in his presentation. In fact, he made 39 errors that night. She wrote them all down. And when she saw him at the end of the sermon, she told him, you made this mistake. And she told him all about it. He looked at her and he said, lady, I'm using all the English I know to lead souls to Christ. What are you doing with the English you know? When we think about that, all knowledge, all gifts, all that God has given to us, all influence has been given so that you and I can lead people to Jesus. That's what he wants us to do, point people to him. And this is the only time, by the way, in the book of Revelation where Jesus introduces himself as the son of God. When we meet him in chapter one, he is the son of man. When we meet him here, to, when he's introducing himself to Thyatira, he is the son of God. This is a title that proclaims his deity. But not only that, the Bible says, he says, I have eyes of fire. What is that all about? His eyes do not look past you. They don't look through you, they look in you. He looks past the superficial things that other people see and he sees us for who we really are. And not only that, but fire purifies. And do we need purifying? Do we need cleansing? Yes, we do. And so Jesus has those fiery eyes. And not only that, but he says he has feet like fine brass. Jesus presents himself as one who understands the fiery trials of our lives because he's been with us through the furnaces of our affliction that we go through. And he has gone through those afflictions himself. So we have a savior who understands us. 
When I do this, it means you can say amen, okay? So we have a savior who understands us, and that's wonderful news. But not only that, feet are an emblem of possession. Jesus is in control. And notice with me, verse 19. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Jesus knows that this church is busier now than when they first came to know him. He knows who we are. But not only that, he notices what we do and he commends our faithfulness to him always. I love this thought because Jesus is grateful for anything and everything that we do for him. No matter how big or no matter how small that might be, Jesus is thankful and grateful for everything you do for his service. It might be as something as simple as sending an invitation on an email to invite someone to come to church. Jesus is grateful for this. It might be just changing the signboard at the church. That is something Jesus is grateful for. He sees everything we do for him. And by the way, this is the only church of all the seven that is actually said to be improving in its condition. That's interesting. However, an active church doesn't always mean a faithful church. And the fiery eyes of the great physician, they look beyond the activity for which he is grateful. And he looks into Thyatira and he sees a problem. Let's notice what it is in verse 20. Nevertheless, that's the more sophisticated way of saying but. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Okay, so suddenly we've met a new character in this letter, a woman named Jezebel. Now, when you hear the name Jezebel, what do you think of? Instantly, you might be like me and you think of an apostate king who married a pagan princess in a union of church and state. She was also the daughter of the high priest of Baalism. In fact, Jezebel's first official act in the Bible was to kill every man of God that she could get her hands on. Uh, you might remember that she not only killed all the prophets of God, she then replaced them with her own favorite prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and these were invited to sit at her table always. Pretty remarkable. Uh, they were very demonic uh, priests and prophets, the prophets of Baal. They were the worst that the host of darkness could produce. Don't be deceived by this picture here. Jezebel was a vicious, vile, and violent woman. She was blatantly against God and blatantly against Israel, and she, sorry, she led Israel into national apostasy. She was not someone to be trifled with. She was like a Lady Macbeth squared. In fact, notice what 1 Kings 16.33 says, Ahab did how much? More to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's interesting that today when archaeologists go to Israel, they find more statues of Baal there than they do anywhere else in the world. And this was all thanks to Jezebel and her influence. 
What was Baal? Baal was believed to be the fertility god, but he was also worshipped as the sun god, and he was worshipped through sacrifices, and those sacrifices would include human sacrifices, and sometimes the worshippers even offered their own children in order to appease their god. And God hated it, not only for that reason, but their worship service in order to appease Baal was also filled with all of this sick and sexual stuff that was just disgusting. In the days of wicked Jezebel, there were images of Baal and Asheroth that gleamed on street corners. Idolatrous temples and heathen altars were everywhere. In fact, Ahab, maybe it was a Valentine's gift, we don't know, but he even built a temple to Baal in Israel, probably to make Jezebel feel at home there. The hills were alive with the smoke from pagan sacrifices, and the valleys echoed with the chants of the false prophets. These were the dark days for God's people. To follow God at this time was to risk ostracism and even worse, death. It was not popular to follow God, but it was right. And it is into this scene of earth's history that Elijah bursts into Bible history with the force of a hammer and his words striking the godlessness of the times like lightning. He spoke with the authority of God as he shared what God's word was at this time. And it's interesting as I think about Elijah at this time, and I think about Elijah and this time and its relationship to Thyatira, it's interesting because in John's time, I mentioned that Thyatira was known for its trade guilds. And trade guilds had some pretty sick religious practices as well. You see, Apollos, or Apollo, like Baal, was worshipped as the sun god, and the people of Thyatira would worship him as part of their trade guild meetings. So what would happen? The trade guild for pottery might meet, or whatever the guild was about, they would meet and they would have a worship. They would offer sacrifices to Apollo, and then at the end of the meeting, after they were finished, they would be drinking, and again, all kinds of immorality and illicit sex would take place. And so the Christians in Thyatira were faced with a very serious problem, and it was this. Could a Christian compromise and meet the guilds halfway for commercial purposes, or should a Christian participate in these, in these, in these rituals, or should they step away and risk unemployment, ostracism, or worse? And clearly, the church in Thyatira was answering this question, these questions, in all the wrong ways. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, verse 29, the Bible says uh, that they should abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. But as I think about this, I think to myself that perhaps the problem of Thyatira isn't as ancient as we might think, because the problem and the temptation to compromise today continues for all of us, me included, still. We, are, we come to find ourselves questioning, should I work on Friday night or should I not? 
Should I enjoy a social drink with my friends, or you know, and just for business purposes, or should I uh, should I abstain? How far can I go in X, Y, Z, and still call myself a Christian? When John was writing, Jezebel had been dead for about nine hundred years. And so we must understand her reference here in the letter to, church of Thyatira, to the church of Thyatira as being symbolic imagery. Now, you remember what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. <laughs> Let every husband that hath an ear listen. <laughs> this is an amazing text when you think about it and you read through, especially the book of Revelation, and you see how Jesus loved his church. If there's some serious stuff there, and he loved her through thick and thin, and he was protecting her. But in the in Bible prophecy, a woman represents a church. All right, so we know that. And it's in- interesting because there are two women outside of Jezebel in the book of Revelation uh, that are pictured. One is a pure woman, so that must be a good church, and one is a bad woman, so it must be a bad church right there. Therefore, when we come to this text in the Bible, when we meet Jezebel here in the New Testament, we must understand that she represents a church claiming to speak on behalf of God while doing this, putting the people of God to death. Was there ever a church in history that fits this description that we find here um, in the Bible? And the answer is, of course, a resounding yes. You see, friends, God intentionally selected and arranged the letters to the seven churches here in Revelation. He could have picked uh, other churches, by the way. He could have written a letter to Troas or Miletus, or Hierapolis, or Colossae, these are actually bigger and more significant churches than just Thyatira. But God didn't do that. And there's a reason why, notice what the Spirit of Prophecy says, the messages given to the churches in Asia portray the state of things existing in the churches of the religious world today. The names of the churches are symbolic of the Christian church in different periods of the Christian era. There's the key. The number of the churches, seven, indicates completeness and is symbolic of the fact that the messages extend to the end of time and are enforced today. All right, so if that's the case, well, then this is what we can see. Ephesus would have to represent the apostolic church, that period of time when the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world as the apostles are on fire, the Mediterranean world, that is. And in the letter to the church of Ephesus, Jesus reminds them that devotion is more important than duty. Amen. We all need to be reminded of that. Then in Smyrna, in his letter to Smyrna, we see a picture of the persecuted church during the time of the Roman emperors. According to church history, as many as five million Christians may have been martyred for their faith during this period. That is a remarkable figure right there. But Jesus tells this church that he is with them in adversity. That is good news as well. To the 
church of Pergamos, we find a compromising church starting to step into the scene. We see Constantine, he becomes the emperor. And not only that, he becomes a Christian. And suddenly as he does this, Christianity becomes popular. But as it does, paganism starts to flood the church in the name of Christianity. And so in his letter to the church of Pergamos, Jesus talks about faithfulness. Then there's the church of Thyatira, what we're studying right now. And if we're following the progression of church history right here, then this compromising church led to a corrupt church here in Thyatira, which represents the period of papal supremacy during the Dark Ages. Following this, there was the church of Sardis, the dead church, but a church that also represents the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And actually, these churches here that you see on the screen, most scholars from most denominations all agree that that's what they represent as an amazing fact. Then the last two, the Church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love and of mission. It saw men like Whitfield and Wesley, William Carey even sailed for India in this period in 1793. I watched a movie on his life, a movie called The Candle in the Darkness. It's quite fascinating. It took him five months to get to India when he decided to go. When he got there, he labored and he was trying to learn the language, trying to preach the gospel. It took him six years to win one soul to Christ. During that time, he buried his son and his wife. Uh, she couldn't handle the stress of this mission field experience that they were on and she actually um, became mentally ill. But during this time, he stuck at it and, and God blessed him and he ended up translating the Bible into five languages as well there in India. And he even brought about an end to a practice called sati, which was when the husband died, if the wife was still living, they used to burn her next to him as well so she could be with him in the afterlife. God used a man like William Carey to help end that. And so this was an amazing time of missionary fervor. And then of course, we know about the last one, the church of Laodicea, a people judged representing the church from 1844 right down to our present time today. And I just want to point out something here in light of this. Now we know which historical period we're talking about when we think about Thyatira. In verse 21, Jesus said, I gave her what? Time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Now here, when we're talking about sexual immorality, we're talking about something called spiritual adultery. Say, Sharissa, what are you talking about? Let me tell you in the book of James 4, verse 4, this is what spiritual adultery is. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This church was playing around too much with the world and they were bringing in things that were not part of the Christian faith. And as far as God was concerned, as far as Jesus was concerned, that was like committing a, spiritual, a sexual immorality against him. That's how he feels about it. But it's interesting here that he uses this word in verse 21, time. There are two words in the Greek for time, kairos, which means an opportune moment, and chronos, which means a set period of chronological time. Please bear with me, because this is another amazing thing right here. Uh, 
this means that in the same way that God gave the nation of Israel three and a half years to repent. Remember, it didn't rain for three and a half years at the word of Elijah. For three and a half years, they were given time to repent, to recognize that they were living in rebellion and apostasy to God and to come back to him but they did not. In the same way, God actually gives to this church three and a half years as well, because in Bible prophecy, one day equals one year, and three and a half days times 360, sorry, three and a half years times 360 days is 1260 there. Does that ring a bell? That should start ringing some bells for you. Because guess what? This church, the, that, this papal time of papal supremacy, it lasted from 538 AD right down through to 1798. These were the period of, this was the period known as the Dark Ages, where church and state came together and the papacy, uh, until the papacy received its mortal wounding in 1798. But I just want to tell you about this time because it was during this time that people were led away from the simplicity of the gospel. They were led away from it because God's word was actually locked up in a sense. The only Bibles that were available were in Latin, so the common person couldn't read it, and they were only available chained to library walls, as you can see there in the picture. As such, all of these practices came into the church that were not in God's word and they were not God's doing. And this is why one historian actually said, he said this, the noon of the papacy was the midnight of the world. You're saying, Sharissa, this is all very nice and interesting, but what has this got to do with our theme? Ah, please, I'm so glad you asked this question because... (laughs) Whenever there has been a Jezebel in history, God has always had an Elijah. In the middle of the dark ages, in this middle church, God had a people who chose to be faithful to him and to his word no matter what. They were a people called the Waldensians or the Albigenses, and they fled to the mountains of northern Italy and southern France known as the Alps. These were the Elijah of the dark ages. And like the Elijah in the Israel of old, here in the wilderness, they were able to believe and to worship God as the Bible taught them until many of them were hunted even to the death at this time. But they paved the way for the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And so I just thought this is remarkable because if you look at your screen here, you just see there is this remarkable parallel between the Elijah that we meet in the time of Jezebel in the Old Testament and the Elijah that we see during the period of the dark ages of history as well. And you remember Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. In the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, you may remember one day, Jezebel came home and there was Ahab lying on his bed, facing the wall, sulking, and he won't even eat or drink a thing. She says, what's the matter with you? And he tells her how one day he had been out and he had seen Naboth's vineyard. He has plenty of vineyards of his own, but he liked Naboth's vineyard. And so he went and approached Naboth and asked him, 
I want it. And Naboth wouldn't give it to him. And so he came back and he was sulking about it because he wouldn't give it to him like a child. She looks at him and she says, well, hang on a minute. You're the king, aren't you? She says, go get something and eat something and wash your face and I'll go and sort this out. And so she got two. She wrote a letter and she actually had Naboth framed She ended up having him killed. And so when God heard this, when God heard this, he saw it all rather. When God saw this, he sent word to Elijah and he told Elijah to go down and confront Ahab about what had happened. And so Elijah went and he did confront the king. And if you read the story there in 1 Kings chapter 21, it says that in verse 27, So it was when Ahab heard those words, what God was saying about the judgment that would come to him, it says, he put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. He repented. He was sorry for his sin. And guess what the Bible says? That God says, okay, I will not bring calamity on Ahab in in his lifetime. Isn't that amazing? Wicked King Ahab. God had mercy for him. So he even gives to spiritual Jezebel time to repent, but she does not. She persists because she didn't even repent in the Old Testament either. She persists in her spiritual adultery. And so as I think about this, I read verse 22 of Revelation chapter 2, back there again. It says, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Um, Verse 23, and I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Ah, so much to unpack right here. What's about, what about this reference to her children? It's not a very pretty reference. I will kill her children with death as well. What's Jesus talking about? Well, friends, there's a lesson for us here because does spiritual Jezebel have children? She does. And there's a lesson for us here which I would like us to take on board as well, and it is this. Compromise in this generation Compromise leads to spiritual sickness in this generation and death in the next. The choices that you and I make affect those around us. Sometimes there are people around us that have taken God lightly because we have taken God lightly. And it started them on a journey out instead of bringing them closer to Jesus. So we should never be soft on compromise in our lives. We should ask God to help us be firm and be faithful to Jesus in these things. And it's interesting here, the, the verse that we just read, Jesus says, I am he who searches the hearts, yeah, who searches the, the hearts and minds. Actually, in the original Greek, that word there for hearts is kidneys. <laughs> because in the ancient world, the kidneys were, were understood to be the seat of emotions. And so, and the, the mind, of course, is your intellect. So Jesus searches us. This is judgment language. And we're living in a time of judgment right now as well. But notice here what it says in verse 24 of chapter 2. Jesus says, Now to you I say, 
and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. There is a remnant here in Thyatira. Do you remember Jesus' feet of, of fine brass? They tell me that our Lord was capable of making firm steps. There's a time sometimes when we have to take firm steps for Jesus as well. Sometimes it's time to leave. Sometimes it means we have to take a determined step to follow Jesus. And Jesus wants us to let nothing and come between him and that. And there's a remnant in Thyatira who are putting him first. They're not going to follow Jezebel. They will follow Jesus. In the time of the Dark Ages, there was a remnant who followed Jesus. And in the last days, there will be a remnant who will put Jesus first and put all fear of Jezebel out of their minds as well. In fact, these people are not afraid of her because they have not known the depths of Satan, but rather, as 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. There are people who will know the deep things of God because they have a relationship with him. I hope you're not falling asleep right now because I have still more amazing things to wrap up before we finish. You see, as we look at the letters to the seven churches, you can see, and it's interesting, you can look at them and you can almost see them as going in a progression from bad to worse. I mean, Laodicea is worse than Ephesus and Sardis is definitely worse than Pergamos. There's that kind of thing. But there's also another way of looking at it and it is like this. It's called a chiasm. It's like a literary mountain where the most important point is actually at the top of this literary mountain. And if you arrange the churches like this, there are actually similarities between Ephesus and Laodicea. There are similarities between Philadelphia and Smyrna as well. Both of these churches receive no rebuke from Jesus. And then there's the very top. And at the very top of the chiasm is Thyatira. So question, what's the point, Charissa? Why are you pointing this out to us? Well, apart from the fact that Revelation 2.23 is another indication here, this is the only letter to all the churches that references all the other churches as well. So that's also indicating it's at the top of this chiasm. What's the point? Here is the point. The Elijah of the Middle Ages, when Jezebel was there, there was an Elijah. Then you have uh, in the Middle Ages, the Jezebel of the Middle Ages, and God raised up an Elijah as well. But the spiritual Jezebel of the Dark Ages, she received a mortal wound, but that mortal wound was going to be healed. In other words, Jezebel will live again. And when she does, Thyatiran times will come again and God will, have a Jeze God will have an Elijah as well at the end of time. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. 
I think that's remarkable. And so can we expect her to have um, children joining her in her spiritual apostasy? Yes. We can expect God will raise up an Elijah who will also uh, proclaim God's law and that his day of worship still matters because he is still the creator God. And this message will go to all the world. Whenever there has been a Jezebel, God has always raised up an Elijah. In the book of Malachi, we looked at this last night. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Has the great day of the Lord come yet? No. And so friends, you and I are actually part of the final story here in the letter to the church of Thyatira. And so to this church, uh, Jesus has some wonderful things to, uh, to say to us. He says, hold fast to us. Hold fast means to hold on, remain tightly secured to me. The road ahead the journey ahead, the flight ahead may get bumpy, but hold on to me because we will make it. We're going to make it and I'll bring you home. Isn't that good news? Notice here um, what the Bible, actually it's a quote I believe I have. I'm going to skip this one for time. But Jesus says, hold fast and look at this. He will never abandon one for whom he has died unless his followers choose to leave him he will hold them fast. He calls us to hold on to him, but he says, I will hold on to you if you will hold on to me. And so we better finish this. Verse 26 and 27 of Revelation chapter two. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. Spurgeon once prayed, Lord, throw down the Jezebel of our unbelief and let the dogs devour it. I pray that we will be a people that will hold fast because we love him. We'll obey Jesus with all of our hearts because we love him. Jezebel, she ruled with a rod of iron, but Jesus says to his people, to his remnant in Thyatira, that one day the tables will return, will be turned, and they will have a rod of iron themselves. And it's interesting because a shepherd had a rod, and on the end of it was a point of iron. And the point of this rod was actually protection, to protect them. And Jesus says, one day the tables will turn, and the, the, the hardship that you experience now, you will not experience anymore. You will be safe. There's a reference to a potter's vessel. What's that about? Well, friends, if a potter makes a vessel and it doesn't serve the purpose for which he made it, it's the potter's right to break the vessel and start over. And that's what will happen. Uh, he says, the nations did not serve the purpose that I created them to serve. And so they will be no more. They'll be no more against you. And then the last part here, ah, I'm rushing, I know, but the last part Notice the last verse of this message. He says, and I will give him what? The morning star. Now this is, what is the morning star? The morning star is that first star that appears in the sky that heralds the approach of the coming day. 
And in the time of spiritual um, Israel there in the wilderness in the dark ages, there was a man who was known as the morning star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe. Why? Because he brought the word of God into available ways to the people. That was a bad English sentence, but he made the word available in English is what I'm trying to say. And so um, he made Jesus accessible to the people. And if you look in the Bible, who is the bright and morning star? It is Jesus himself. And Jesus says to us, he says, if you hold fast to me, one day I will appear to you as the morning star at the end of this long night of sin and suffering in this world. And I just want to encourage you today that we have such a wonderful hope in the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing that I'm looking forward to most about heaven is this on the screen. I love that picture because it's very touching. And there's a dog there. I love that dog. I love that the little boy's left his wheelchair. But most of all, I love that he's getting a hug from Jesus. Do you know that's biblical? It's actually now my new favorite Bible text. It's John 14, 1 to 3. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will think about coming again. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. That word receive means to hug you to himself. We're going to get a hug from Jesus when we get to heaven. And I think when he gives me that hug, he will pull me in. And it'll be the kind of hug where he won't want to let me go. And when he pulls me in, he may even whisper something in my ear. Or you whisper something in yours too. Something like, I'm so glad that you're here. This wouldn't be the same if you weren't here. And enter into the joy of your Lord. I look forward to that day with all my heart. But that thought, that hug... That's something to hold fast for, is it not? That is something to reach out to other people for. They need to know that there's a meme going around on Facebook. It says, one day someone's going to hug you so tight that all of your broken pieces will come back together again. I believe that's true, but that hug's going to come from Jesus. And we need people to know that there is a God out there who loves them, and he is coming soon to take you home. Two missionaries were returning from their time in the mission field. And as they did, they were on the boat. The boat pulled into the harbor and the husband looked out the window and he saw that there was a band on the dock there and he was a little bit excited. He thought, obviously, the church is looking forward to them returning from the field and they've prepared a welcome uh, party for them. And so he and his wife got their things together and walked off the boat, but as they are walking off the ramp, they realized that the band was for some other dignitary on board they didn't know was there, and nobody was there to greet them. And so they went to their cheap motel that they booked for that night, and as he walked in, he put the bags on the floor, he sat on the edge of the bed, and he just started to weep. And his wife looked at him. She said, why are you crying? What's the matter? And he said, we went and gave our lives to God's service in the mission field. And nobody even came to meet us here on the dock. And his wife said to him, but we're not home yet. <laughs> when Jesus comes again, there is a wonderful family reunion, a wonderful homecoming that he's prepared for us. And the hardships that we go through here, 
the times of testing that we go through here, just remember you and I are not home yet. We've got to go home still. Jesus is going to give us a hug when we get there. So hold fast and remain faithful to him. The last verse in Revelation 2, 29 of this letter is the same as all the others. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit is still speaking. The question is, are we listening? This message has an end time and a, has a then time and an end time application. It's a letter to Thyatira, but it's a letter to us as well. And I just wanted to encourage you with these final words on the screen, because one day a little lady in November of 1905, it was a Sabbath morning, and she woke up and she had been reading the letter to Thyatira. And after that, she wrote these words on the screen. And these will form our prayer time in just a moment. When the truth in its simplicity is lived in every place, then God will work through his angels as he worked on the day of Pentecost and hearts will be changed so decidedly that there will be a manifestation of the influence of genuine truth as is represented in the descent of the Holy Spirit. I love that first line there, when the truth in its simplicity is lived. Just live what you know to be true. Ask the Spirit of God to come and fill you so that you can live up to the light that you know, so that you can be an Elijah in your community, in your family, in your church and your workplace. Because as we do this, then the world will be lightened with the glory of God and the work can be finished and we can go home. In closing, has the message made sense? I recognize it was a lot to take in today, but I pray that this message will speak to your heart as well because it's still a love letter from Jesus to all of us. Do you want to hold fast? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our loving Father in heaven, thank you that your word speaks to us still today, that this letter to Thyatira is a letter to us as well. We see how it all fits together with history, but Lord, we also see the call that you make to each heart to us to call us to be faithful to Jesus no matter what. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live up to all the truth that we know to be true so that others will see Jesus living in us. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We thank you that we can be here in this place. And as we spend time in prayer now, we just ask that you would uh, come into our hearts and change us and make us more like Jesus is our prayer in Jesus' name. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, dot O-R-G dot A-U. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Who can I trust? We are living in times of increased stress and economic uncertainty. Betrayals and failed relationships cause a loss of trust. Trust is defined as confidence or calm reliance in the ability, strength, or dependability of someone or something. Trust, optimism, and freedom from chronic anxiety yield valuable physical and mental health benefits. Young children are naturally trusting, and those who believe that people can change and improve are more forgiving and able to trust again when wrongs are committed. Children, youth, and adults who lack trust have increased levels of loneliness and social isolation linked to depression and poor health. The healthiest social relationships are marked by trust, cooperation, and fairness. Trust is good medicine. Trusting attitudes stimulate oxytocin, a hormone linked with lactation, social bonding, and compassion. Attitudes of trust, compassion, hope, and optimism are directly linked to improved immune health, better pregnancies, pain management, and improved cancer outcomes. Low optimism and high pessimism increases the risk for disease and premature death. Chronic mistrust is linked to significantly reduced immune function and suppressor of helper and T-cell activity. Increased trust is linked to better overall health and positive social ties. Trusting relationships with healthcare providers improves medical outcomes. And team attitudes of trust in the workplace are linked not only with less sickness, absenteeism, and accidents, but also improved service. Trust is hardwired in young children and is vital to individual health and social stability. This trait comes from God. His character shows us how to forgive and reestablish trust. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. Exodus 34, 6, and 7. We can depend on and trust God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without evil. Just and upright is He. Deuteronomy 32, 4. Here we see a picture of a God who embodies every trait we can trust. And because he is God, we can trust him completely. Love and trust. God invites us to trust him because he loves us just as we are. And we love because God first loved us. 1 John 4:19. God is love. It is the essence of his nature, a nature that he wants to instill within us. All love originally comes from God. Love flows from God to us, which in turn enables us to love Him back. This relationship then frees us to have a pure, God-given love for ourselves and others. Only when we have pure love for God and ourselves can we truly love our neighbors. This amazing flow of love promotes life and healing. Healing Trust when we accept God's unconditional love for us and wholly trust in His power 
to transform our lives, we are energized to take better care of ourselves in order to reflect His character to a needy world. Difficult times come to all, and there is suffering and injustice to cope with in this life. Because of sin, Jesus tells us in John 16, to expect this very thing, but only for a time. He will make all things right very soon. He will create a new earth without the stain of sin, and you can be a part of it. Revelation 12, 10 to 12. The more you get to know him, the more you will trust him. He will make you strong and wise and give you peace and even joy in this life beset with so many trials. Sacrifice and Trust Author Charles Kalman noted, You can trust the man who died for you. The Bible reveals that God's love for man is so great that he came to this world to reveal himself through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16 Jesus came as the Word made flesh. He created us, died to redeem us, and will give us power to be like him. John 1.10 Invited to Trust It has been said that you can trust the Lord too little, but you can never trust him too much. We can lean on God to guide us through all of life's challenges. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own judgment. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a hiding place for us. Psalm 62, 8. Faith and trust. The Bible describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews eleven thirteen. It is trusting in advance what we may only understand in reverse. Faith is that spiritual anchoring which enables a person to weather the storms of life because they trust God's promise that he will supply every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 Faith is looking at the situation through God's eyes as recorded in his word, the Bible. Faith is power for the journey, not a lucky charm for perfect results. See Hebrews 11. Faith grows strong when battling through obstacles and trials. This could be why Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, sometimes leads us through difficulties rather than removing them from us. Hebrews 12, 2. It's time to trust. Although we cannot know the future, we can know that God wants only what is best for us. He invites us to trust him. Look to God and allow his love and mercy to calm you. Look to his word, the Bible, to instruct you. Pray. Trust in Christ, your Redeemer, to save you. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God have I put my trust. I will not fear. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. It was a bit nerve-wracking at first, getting married and becoming part of my wife's family. Her relatives became my relatives. That's new aunts and uncles and cousins. I became part of a new family, 
And when I accepted Jesus as my Savior, the same thing happened. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew 12, verse 50. They told him that his mother and brothers were waiting to speak to him. And he said, Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. Now think about this. Just as really as you are part of the family in which you were raised, Jesus himself said that when you come to him in faith, you are his brother or sister. Jesus wants you to know that your bond with him is real and close. Remember today, you and Jesus are family. I'm John Bradshaw for It Is Written. Let's live today by every word. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.